Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today's guest is Paul Atherley, chairman of Pensana Rare Earth, an exploration company soon to be bringing into production one of the world's largest and high-grade rare earth projects in Angolia to bring to the market minerals used in power magnets, wind turbines, hybrid motor vehicles, and much more. Um, they've been rec- recently listed on the London Stock Exchange, so there's uh, certainly plenty to talk about. So that's no further ado and get straight into this. I want to welcome Paul. How are you doing, Paul? Very well on this bright sunny day, Rob. Yeah, where you well, where you are might be sunny. Where I am is a little bit cloudy, so... <laughs> Hopefully the stuff will come out soon. So, um, yeah, wondered if you can just give us, uh, before we go in and uh, speak about uh, Pensana, um, and obviously you're recently um, recently been floated, wondered if you can give uh, the audience that may not know of you a little bit about your background, so from way back in the day, um, and just give us a, a brief overview of your, um, of your career and your journey to where you are today. Well, thanks, Rob. Um, I think the audience want to go too far back, but I'm basically a mining engineer. I went to the Royal School of Mines, Imperial College. I was worked as an underground miner, uh, ship boss, foreman, uh, mine manager, mining engineer, um, and then did my time as a mine manager operating uh, very large underground mines and then open pit mines in uh, in Australia. And then um, made the transition. One of the companies I was working for, the banks took took it over. And they um, were looking for somebody to come and work in uh, their investment banking arm. So I joined the investment banking arm of, of the Hong Kong Bank as a as an associate, that is a sort of technical person working with accountants and lawyers. And within a few years, I became the executive director. I became an investment banker who was uh, raising money and uh, doing things for junior mining companies. But I actually found that I was on the uh, wrong side of the table. I was always sort of sitting there talking to miners thinking about I would actually prefer to uh, be um, the miner spending the money rather than the investment banker uh, lending it to them or raising it for them. So I then branched out on my own and uh, with Richard Seville, who I was at university with, Rich and I uh, created uh, an early company called Murchison United many years ago. We built uh, um, one of the first um uh, copper heat bleach operations in Australia, a place called Mount Cuthbert, which was uh, ultimately very successful and got sold. Um, we then took on the Renison Bell tin mine and we deunionized that. It was a very, very heavily unionized mine, but struggling, very, very low tin prices. So we took on the union, deunionized it. I think we halved the, halved the workforce and reduced the mine equipment by a third. And that mine was saved and it's still going today. So that was a fantastic turnaround. And during that process, we were trying to buy a mine in Portugal called uh, Neves Curvo. And that's the time when Rio Tinto was selling its um, 49% interest in the mine. Um, and we came up against um, some um, early Iberian politics, which uh, 
which still exists today, um, which uh, made life difficult for us. So uh, we weren't able to complete that transaction. Subsequently, the Lundin Group, I think, went on and bought that mine and they made huge amounts of money out of it. So we're a little bit ahead of our time and uh, um, a bit out of our debt, to be honest, we were too small, but you know, it was a, it was a really good idea. And then um, we spent 10 years in China um, doing lots of things. I built a gold mine in, uh, in northern, on the border between Russia and China, a province called Heilongjiang. Developed an oil and gas asset in uh, Shanxi, central China, and a big coal project in uh, Xinjiang in western China. And also was uh, involved with the uh, British community and the European Union community in Beijing. I was chairman of the Chamber of Commerce, and I was on the Energy Working Group in, in Beijing, lots of that stuff. But it was clear I was having too much fun to, to enjoy myself too much, so I got to, brought back to London to head up a company called Barclay Energia in 2015, and um, we set about trying to get approvals for this um, uranium mine in Spain. We raised 165 million US dollars at the bottom of the uranium price cycle, and we basically broke ground. We were building a road, pouring concrete, uh, brought the crusher in. But unfortunately, the, uh, the government's changed in Spain and uh, the, uh, the uh, approvals process basically has ground to a halt. So that's, uh, that's not happening anytime soon. But despite that company's got $100 million in the bank, it, was, it wasn't something that was going to happen at all quickly. And it became clear that was the, the case. So I was offered an opportunity to look at a little company called Rift Valley Resources in Australia, had uh, running out of cash, had a little copper project in, in Angola. We had a look and liked this rare earth thing that it got uh, for a whole bunch of reasons we can talk about. And um, we successfully transformed this little junior into now a main board listed company um, in London, as you say, just recently list, listed. Um, and growing rapidly, and we're well on track to be developing the first major rare earth mine in over a decade. So very, very, it's the, it's the classic junior story. It's from sort of grubbing, grub staking it from a few drill holes up to, up to putting it into production. That's what every junior wants to be able to do. And we're, I'd say, halfway, halfway through that process and going extremely well. Yeah. And um, just want to go back. And obviously you mentioned through your career that you went into the investment banking side. And I'd imagine a lot of the, I'll say younger listeners to this uh, podcast may think that going into the sort of the investment banking side uh, from maybe studying a mine engineering degree or geology degree may think that's an attractive proposition um, going into maybe the city as opposed to being out on a mine site. You said you went into it and then said that wasn't you. What, what kind of things would you say, and if and not putting anyone off if they were looking to go in that direction, but if you are a mine engineer or a geologist and you're someone that's been out on site and thinking the bright lights of the city is probably where you want to go, what, what kind of things put you off when you were in there that you wish, I suppose you, did, you made that move anyway, but why, why, why didn't you like being on that side of the table rather than being a back in back up say on site or working for the miner well i'll quote the um a managing director of a very very large investment bank around the world who who shared with me 
uh, thoughts when I first joined investment banking. He, he said, and this is a quote, so I'm allowed to swear. He said, Paul, in this role, you're just a, an expensive whore. That's all you are. In this right. Whereas if you are a, a shareholder, major shareholder or CEO or chairman of a junior company, for all its risks, for all its ups and downs, for all its challenges, you are the author of it. So I guess the different fundamental difference is if you like basically raising money, selling money, and, and creating wealth that way, helping others, that's a very legitimate career, and you can apply your technical and financial and personal skills to that. That's one career, and you're assisting the industry in that way, and you're creating wealth that way. Or the other one where people, people like myself and others, we like to go and take a risk and back ourselves um, and basically bring our engineering and management and capital regular skills to the fore in a very, very risky environment to generate exceptional return. So I think you can kind of work out who you are. If you want to go and build and create and take that chance, that's one, one type of person. If the other person, if you want to be a facilitator and do the other, the investment banking is, is, is the, is, is the two. I think there are, the two, I think it's a personality thing. I don't think there's things one's right or wrong. Um, I think there is a tendency and always has been a tendency for the, the best and the brightest to think going into investment banking or into the cities, you call it, is a good thing uh, early on. I just discourage people from that. The longer you spend time in industry, the more value you are in the city later on. But you can't go into the city early and then go and pick up the experience later. You, know, you just can't do that. So putting in a good shift, so to speak, um, in, in industry is well worthwhile. And, um, you know, I particularly encourage young women. I sponsor uh, young women to do STEM at school and because I want, you know, young talented women to come through, um, come through into university. In fact, um, the last girl I sponsored was a young Pakistani immigrant who, whose family has no connection with, um, with the mining industry whatsoever, but she's a brilliant engineer, brilliant, you know, really very smart and gets everything about engineering and all those things. And we need people like that to come and see, you know, the fundamentals of, of, of why this industry is amazing. You know, I always say to people who don't like the industry, well, give me your mobile phone, give me everything that makes your modern life work because brilliant geologists and metallurgists and engineers and people have, have made that happen for you. And the more we can get people to see that earlier, um, particularly women, um, young, smart women, and tell that story. You and I telling this story, Rob, people just roll their eyes. My daughter rolls her eyes when I start going down this, this, this line. But then we get young women to tell the story. So, so if, if going into mining is a ticket to go into the city, it's kind of missing the point. Because if you're going into mining, because you're going to go and create the defining critical metals of civilization, it's the metals that we mine that are going to allow the green revolution, the energy transition, everything that everybody wants, it comes from us. We need young, bright people in industry telling that story rather than going being yet another analyst in, in the city. Yeah, no, I pre appreciate uh, you giving that uh, advice and hopefully people 
if they're if they're toying with that idea, just thinking a little bit broader and thinking what type of person they are, and I suppose also where they want to go in their career as well. And it's not always the bright lights of the city and thinking it's it's easy going going and working away from site. Um, but like you said, it's 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 sometimes your own personality, what you are, and also I suppose where you want to go in your career. So really appreciate you uh, giving that. Uh, Giving that advice and your, from your obviously your experience. Um, so, can you tell us about uh, Penn Sana uh, Rare Earths and and I suppose also the rare earth space as well that you're that you're occupying at the moment? Well, the way we look at it is that right now there's 16 trillion US dollars being put into the post-COVID stimulus programs to put the world most major economies back on track. But this is not like 2008 when post 2008 we had major stimulus programs they basically went into the old legacy industries this time's different money's not going back into legacy industries it's going into new green industries energy transition and there's no better example of that than angela merkel the german government has announced a 130 billion euro stimulus package um, largely focusing on its major industry which is the car industry but not one euro is going into the old part of the industry. It's not going into internal combustion engines. All of it's going into electric vehicles. That's going into and two very, very, two very, very um, uh, strong areas. One is uh, seventy thousand charging stations. Another the, the area is they've doubled the uh, subsidy on electric vehicles to six thousand euros. So, so in the world where the biggest expenditure we've ever seen in government stimulus, this is policy driven, it's not economically driven, it's policy driven, is going into anything green, Green New Deal, European Green Deal, they've all got a different name, but it's the same thing. Basically, we need them, we need critical metals. And you'll hear lots of companies talking about battery metals, but really it's bigger than that, it's critical metals. And the way we try to explain it is in the context of an EV, You'll hear endless people talking about uh, batteries, but really all batteries are is produce electricity. And it, you can get electricity from a fuel cell, from a plug-in, from whatever. Really, the revolution in electric vehicles comes about by some incredibly powerful um, permanent magnets. These things are tiny. Uh, a 20-gram magnet can lift um, 25 kilos. They are incredibly wow. powerful. So the reason why your Porsche Taycan can accelerate from zero to 100 kilometers an hour nearly as fast as a Formula One car, two and a half seconds, is because the car is basically a big lumpy battery. That's all it is, a big lump of battery with a chassis bolted onto it. But really where the power comes from is the torque in those axial motors comes from these permanent magnets, with the magnets and a, and a, and a copper coil. So we, we mustn't forget that this um, uh, electrical revolution isn't all about batteries. That's just the storage of electricity. It's about the, um, uh, the transformation um, of the electric, electrification of motive power, essentially what it is. We've all grown up with um, all forms of internal combustion engine, uh, whether it be um, Formula One cars examples through diesel motors through, through ships, through everything. They're basically internal combustion engines. The transformation is they're all being replaced by electric motors. And these electric motors require critical metals, um, namely the permanent magnets that go into them. We supply that. But there's a whole other sector that's even bigger than electric vehicles. Um, 
we, we talk about transiting away from fossil fuel power electricity generation. So, uh, you know, the UK has, is leading the world in this. It's talking about phasing about coal-fired power within 10 years. Amber Rudd put that in power when she was put that in place when she was in, in, in the office. And we've got to replace we've got to replace this with something. And we're not going to replace it with onshore solar or onshore wind. You know, even the most ardent greenie, the most ardent extinction rebellion sympathizer does not want a wind turbine or a solar farm all over their, their landscape. They're just they're just difficult onshore in a tiny crowded island such as the UK. But where the big the big scalability comes is putting is in offshore wind. And there's been dramatic improvements in offshore wind. So onshore wind, you could get sort of 20, 25% availability. The wind doesn't blow very very much um, and the the onshore wind turbines are quite small they're, they're sort of about a megawatt one megawatt the big transformation has been these absolutely gigantic wind turbines um, offshore and they've now created an array of them in the north sea and it's called the north sea wind power hub this power hub is six times bigger than china's three gorges dam It's the biggest energy uh, installation on the planet and the way it works, you've got these um, relatively shallow sandbanks. You remember from the shipping forecast, Dogger Bank. Yeah, yeah. Dogger Bank's now a wind farm. And on Dogger Bank, they're putting some of the biggest wind turbines um, ever built. They are 260 meters high. Uh, they're called the Hallie 80s-X, manufactured by GE. And each one's 12 megawatts, 12 megawatts per turbine. 260 meters high, each blade's 100 meters long. That those um, generators need seven tons of permanent magnets. They're the reverse of an electric motor. So basically, they're a direct drive. So it's basically a rotor inside an electric series of magnets. So the wind turns the, uh, the, the blades, the blades affix the rotor. The rotor operates, rotates inside the magnets, generates electricity. That's the future. And that's scalable because apart from seagulls, there's nobody else out there who's going to object to it. So finally, if we're going to meet the 2013, 2050 carbon targets and we're going to make the energy transition, you finally got a renewable energy source that's scalable. You know, it's, you don't have to go through all the... So it's, 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 I don't know what the term is, ballooning, mushrooming, growing like mad. And it's estimated it will be a trillion dollar industry, industry by 2040. And it's massive success story for this country. I think a third of the winds, offshore wind, already comes from the UK or UK waters, North Sea. Now, EVs and offshore wind turbines are going to require enormous amounts of metals, all sorts of metals. But also, but in particular, the metals we're producing, which is neodymium and praseodymium, which is the magnet metals. But we've got a problem because at the moment, 87% of the world's magnets come from China. And there's only one major rare earth mine, neodymium, praseodymium mine in the world in production. And it's the uh, Mount Weld mine in Australia, it belonged by Linus Corporation. They've got a market cap of about a billion, a billion US dollars around that range. Um, and there's no other mine in construction of any size around the world. Uh, thing. So there's basically, an, and they came online 12 years ago. So we've got this amazing situation where you've got this impending demand from EVs and offshore wind turbines for these for the for these magnets 
and you know Adamus have talked about EVs are going to drive a 350% increase in demand and others have talked about a 1500% increase in demand from offshore wind so there's big demand but the supply side's constrained so we're in the fortunate position that we've got a mine in Angola which is the Pensana the Longonjo mine um, and we think we've got a real chance of getting up and running one because uh, we've got a big deposit which we've been announcing some fantastically high grade results from but it's a blanket mineralization sitting on surface but it just happens to sit right next door to a recently upgraded two billion dollar railway line the chinese have upgraded and runs to a port the port of the benguela railway line and runs to a port the port of libito which is also being upgraded and we've got hydroelectric power nearby so as a mining person you go well it's all right having an ore buddy but i need rail power water electricity well and everything's around surprisingly surprisingly this particular mine already had the deposit already has that so we're drilling it out um we will have a bfs out by middle of october and we're reasonably confident at this stage it's going to be highly economic and we're looking forward to becoming that first um rare earth mine for 12 years to come online to to meet this 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 growing demand for this this um this sector that everybody wants which is energy transition Hmm. So I wondered if you can just tell us a little bit more about the project, what's unique about it, and just go in a little bit more detail so the audience can understand more so about the project. Sure. Well, rare earths themselves aren't rare, as you know, but rare earth mines are dedicated to very yeah. rare, so it's a rare mine. So what works about it, it's a blanket of mineralization sitting on the surface, top 50 meters. Uh, it's very high grade. We sort of average anywhere between 2 and 6%. REO, TREO won't, won't mean much to the listeners, but the key element of it is the neodymium, prosodymium. We've got very, very good grades of that. Um, the metallurgical test work is very, very encouraging. So essentially, it's a high-grade deposit lying on surface, easy to mine. And as I mentioned, it's next to rail and, and, uh, and port, and um, we've got uh, hydroelectric power and water. So essentially, the 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 characteristics of the deposit and the infrastructure associated with it make it make the capital cost of the mine $200 million rather than four or $500 million, which would be normally the case and certainly the case for competitors. So key advantage is because of the infrastructure, it's very low capital cost. And then key um, operating cost advantages because we're high grade, then we all have low operating costs. So we think we're, we're in that sweet spot of low capital cost fast development and able to produce a product relatively cheaply. Yeah. What challenges have you faced so far to, to, to where you got to now? And what challenges do you sort of see maybe in the near future, if any? Rare, rare earths are complicated. The, you know, just simple things like getting the SG right of the, uh, the gang material on the ore and the, they're not homogeneous. We've got a complex suite of ores um, and metallurgical processing of rare earths is complex. So the biggest challenges of being around all of the, that area is simplifying that to a point where we can reliably know what product we're being able to produce. So we mined 60 tons of ore, put the ore in containers, brought them to, to Australia, and they're now in labs going pilot testing at the moment. So that's, Rob, that would be the number one challenge is sorting out the the process route and the the um, metallurgical response, um, which is all coming together well, but it's the biggest challenge, and that will be 
that will come out and be reported on in the, in the BFS in the middle of October. So that's the major challenge. Everything else is rel <laughs> relatively straightforward. But the big surprise, the big win has been, has been the amazing support of the Angolan government. So we've got a new government in Angola, been there for three years. Um, they've made it very, very clear. They, you know, Angola is a remarkable place. The average age of, of the population in Angola is something like 17 years old. Okay. And all very well educated, um, very, um, very switched on. The, the young professionals in the company that I sit in the car with, they've all got phones and they've got this, all the same apps on as my daughter and they speak three or four languages. They're savvy, they're connected, they, uh, they're aspirational. And you can see very clearly that this millennial Gen X government, new government, young people in the government have been are, are responding to this, this need for this population, aspirational population base coming through. And what they're looking for is quality of life, quality of jobs, um, and not having to leave the country to go and uh, get on with their lives. And so to that, the government is looking to move away from the historical oil and gas and diamonds and looking to build up mining, tourism, and agriculture. And so they've attracted $20 billion of invested from the Chinese government which has been hugely successful. The infrastructure has been completely transformed. There's a lot of money going into um, agriculture. I, I'm not, I honestly don't know how long, how tourism is going. It's a fabulous place to visit. And we're the first cab off the rank with the mining, with a mining, major mining project. And um, the Angolan Sovereign Wealth Fund has backed us. And in other words, they've said, look, you're on policy, like what you're doing, really like the project. They now own 18% of the company. Uh, backed us twice financially and helping us through. So we think that's great. Here's a government saying, this is our policy. We want to develop the country. If you guys come and invest, then their sovereign wealth fund are, are backing us. So very, very positive um, relationship with the, with the Angolan government. And uh, they're certainly putting their money where their policies are, which is extremely encouraging. Yeah. And what about the local communities where your, where your project is and how well have they uh, received uh, you coming into obviously their area and, um, and start obviously starting this project and, and growing it? And what, what kind of things have you done for the local community? One of the first things I did, I went there with, with the team and we sat and met with the local governor and, and asked her, basically we turned up and, and told her, you know, explained what we were hoping to be able to invest in, hoping to be able to achieve. But we asked her, her the governor, um, what she would want, what she wants for, for her community. And um, she was excellent. She, you know, she turned up with all her officials um, and they'd really sort of done their homework and they understood um, what the exchange was about. We needed to know what was required. And it was really good. She talked about got issues with some water, issues with education, um, issues with um, schooling and medical and if we can help with those then that's supportive of the local community um, all good and then the main thing was training we want people to be trained and want people to have the opportunity to grow their careers and to go on so a fantastic response you know if I was if I was her that's what I'd have asked for and if I lived in her constituency I would vote for her because she would clearly had her ear to the ground, understanding what her community needed and was not afraid to ask for it from an investor uh, in a very constructive and positive way. So that's helpful for us because we now know um, what we can do, which will be well received. 
and um, very, very positive, very supportive, very professional. Um, it's been very enjoyable working with them. Yeah. Um, I want to move on now to um, obviously your recent float. Um, just wondered how you can uh, tell us or tell the audience um, how you prepared for the flow. Is there anything you would have done differently? Did it go according to plan? Because um, I think you listed a, f a few weeks ago from when we were actually recording this. Well, that's right. Uh, um, for many um, Australian junior companies, and I can only speak really for the Australian junior companies, but I, I suspect it's similar for Canadian juniors. Is when you come into London, you have to make a fundamental decision is, are you listing as a, a dual listing in London? In other words, it's the same company, but having shares traded in London, or are you gonna do something different? And what we did is we did something different. We actually created a, a UK company, a PLC, that took over the Australian company and then listed the PLC. In other words, we've now become a PLC and we are based in London, we'll pay uh, HMRC tax, we're main board listed, and we're very much targeting um, ESG funds, these critical metals and funds that are focused on Africa um, from a UK perspective. So for our, for, for our case, because we are targeting ESG funds, because we're very institutionally driven and we're, we're looking at Africa, it makes enormous sense to be a London company looking to Africa. Now, in different jurisdictions, different environments, it may well suit to be an Australian company just dual listing in London and having the primary listing in in Australia. So I think you sort of each company has to has to make that fundamental decision up front. And the second major decision is: Are you going to raise money on your IPO on your on your listing? We decided because we were already funded uh, with the Angolan Sovereign Wealth Fund. We decided to do what's just called a compliance listing, which basically list but raise no money. Um, I have to say to you, even with just a compliance list, listing. It's an enormous process. I can imagine. Um, and it's very, uh, it keeps the lawyers in the grandeur that they, um, that they, uh, they feel they're entitled to. No, but no, in all seriousness, the, the, the teams that work on it are, are really good because basically what you're doing is presenting a document and a company to a group of investors who are relying on this work to have been done properly. So it's, they're fully aware of the risks that are involved and the, the wall being bastards out. So, uh, so, saying, so I think the second question is, in answer to your question, what, what advice, make a decision, do you want to do a compliance listing or do you want to raise money at the same time? And then the final thing I'd say is, is, is I think is the, the issue for all junior companies is you need to create some um, support for your company, some trading in the stock. And it traditionally used to be you appointed a broker and the broker would go and um, create some liquidity in your stock and then raise capital, raise equity when you needed it. Unfortunately, because of MIFID 2 and challenges from disintermediation from online brokerages and, and a whole raft of other reasons, the traditional broking model is dramatically changed. It's a, it's a different landscape now. So yes, brokers will raise you capital and yes, they will you, you now enter into a contractual arrangement with them to produce research, which is not independent, so it's disclosed. But the, the, real, the real fundamental change is you cannot now rely on a broker to generate liquidity for you as a listed company um, in London. You have to do that. You have to find that by other means. So that's why we come on shows like yours, Rob, um, uh, and we, we tell the story because we, we have a, 
uh, a responsibility to get the message out more broadly and beyond the sort of narrow, the narrow group of insiders, if you like, who brought the company to market. We need to go and uh, spread the message and create that liquidity. Yeah. So I hope those three points are useful. Yeah. And how did the float go? Did it go as ex expected? Um, and also, secondly, I suppose, what, why would someone want to invest in uh, Pensana? Yes, it went extremely well. Uh, we're trading well above, and we, we're trading 300% up, or maybe higher than that, nearly 400% up on our post-COVID lows. So we, we're, a, we're a three banger already, so it's done extraordinarily well, and we're on our way. Why, why do you want to invest in Pensana? Because you make a lot of money. I mean, the reality is, People who invest in junior mining companies that succeed at the bottom of the cycle tend to be the ones that make lots of money. So I'm saying to you is magnet metals are they started to move, but they, they're relatively low priced. And when these things run, they run very, very, very hard. So you can see all this looming demand from EVs and offshore wind turbines. There's no new mines out there. So we're coming along and presenting ourselves and being you know, expose that upturn. So if nothing else, there's a commodity exposure to owning the stock. And then the stock itself is we go and build the mine and generate cash flow and all those things. There's a, a, a de-risking of the asset as you go along. So why should you buy it? One, because you've got fantastic exposure to the these critical mag magnet metals, which we think are going to take off. And two is we've got this organic growth. We're going to go and build the world's biggest rare earth mine for 12 years. So I think they're two very good reasons to own the stock. And what's the program of works as well? So when are you going into sort of construction and maybe into production, roughly speaking? We've got a, the next six months, we've got an enormous amount of news flow coming out and we haven't made any um, uh, declarations about that because the stages are we've got some order results, met test work, and then we've got this thing called the BFS, the Bankable Feasibility Study, the middle of October. And that's sort of the economic wraparound. It's the economic summary of all the work we've done. And then as that, uh, we're reasonably confident that's going to be extremely positive. At that point, we then say, okay, we're locked and loaded. This is this mine's going ahead. And all the work we're doing, we're doing with the engineering companies and the financiers and everything else will translate into, hopefully, Rob, we will be breaking ground in January next year, putting the early infrastructure in place with a broader target of main construction after Chinese New Year, so sometimes with a march onwards. So we hope to be building for the whole of uh, next calendar year and then production the year after. Okay. Um, and lastly, and we'll slowly wrap this up, um, what's the sort of future uh, of the company in the short and medium term? The short term is we've got a relatively small market cap of about 35 million pounds. Short term is we want to double or treble or we're in that accelerated growth phase. If you look at all companies in this phase, and it's the same with Barclay, I think Barclay went up five or six times in this phase. We're in that accelerated growth phase. So as long as we keep hitting the milestones, the, the value gets unlocked during that period. So we're thinking of accelerated growth in the value of the company and the size of the company over the next six to 12 months. And then we go through that phase of construction and financing and build, and then we're into that sort of more earnings phase beyond that. So, and that's more driven by things like uh, commodity prices and other factors. So I think we're in the accelerated growth phase now, and then we'll be hopefully get to a higher market cap. And then that higher market cap has a, a different return 
as we enter into the production phase. Yeah. Paul, really appreciate your time doing this podcast and uh, hopefully the listeners uh, have got a lot of value out of this. I certainly have and uh, certainly uh, certainly a company to uh, certainly watch on the stock exchange. So, um, yeah, if any of the audience wants to uh, ask you any questions or reach out to you, how can they go about doing that? Well, the code's PRE um, on London Stock Exchange. You can just look us up there. You go to our web- website, which is uh, Pentana Rare Earths, and there's an, uh, there's an admin contact there. I do encourage people to sign up for our newsletter. We put out a, a weekly, a weekly or roughly weekly update. It's a really good way to, it's a very short summary, easy to read, very sort of quick update on what we're doing. And it's an opportunity for people to get engaged with the company and follow what we're doing. Yep, certainly. And we can put these in the show notes accompanying this podcast as well. Can they reach you on any so- can they reach you out on any social media platforms at all? Yes, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, last time I was there as you indicating to me I didn't have any trousers on, so I had a lot of <laughs> yeah. attention for that. So please please feel free on that one and yeah. uh, or by the contacts on the website. Um yeah. I'm very keen. So if people want to reach out, I'm very happy to to respond to uh, to any contact. Yeah, certainly. Well, all of these details will be in the show notes accompanying this. So, uh, and if you've got any questions, you can also field them through to me and I can pass them on to uh, Paul. Uh, my email address is rob at mining-international.org. Really appreciate your time, Paul. Thanks look, for giving a, a good count of uh, Penasar and um, good luck. Good luck uh, for the future. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate that. Keep Always. up the good work. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.